Um, well, good evening, everybody. Uh, I, I trust you found today's fast not too demanding. <laughs> Did you remember? Okay, 10th of Tebet today. Um, First of all, just something about me, but I, I want to contradict Ari because it's always very important to me to fight with hosts. Um, <laughs> uh, Limud doesn't really have keynote speakers. All right. Um, these are th yeah. Well, these are guys who come from out of town, uh, and uh, they maybe have a bigger reputation than some of the other people who'll be presenting. But it doesn't necessarily mean to say that they'll be the best presenters. Uh, there could be all kinds of presenters, um, uh, and one of the things that Limud always does is discovers and reveals people in a given community over and above the kind of celebrity outsiders that arrive too. And if you don't know anything about Limud, uh, the key here is that Limud is not an education conference. It's a learning conference. Right? Education is what people do to you. Right? <laughs> learning is what you do. And there's lots of different ways of learning, and there's lots of different things to learn. And at Limud, there is always choice. So at any given time, depends on the size of the event, but at any given time, uh, there, there could be eight or nine or ten uh, sessions happening concurrently. And there's a fair attempt on the part of the organising team to be sure that in those ten things there are ten different kinds of topics. So if you're interested in Israel or history or religion or text or mysticism or you want to know how to bake a challah or you want to do Israeli dancing or whatever, there's all kinds of different things going on simultaneously. So if you are in any way interested in uh, what I call Jewish stuff, that's the, only, that's the only boundary as to what goes on at Lima, Jewish stuff. If you're in any way interested in Jewish stuff, there'll be stuff there for you. And I gather that, um, well, I know it happens in Costa Mesa, uh, and as a result there is um, a commuter pass, a special arrangement for you guys, um, so you're not going to stay there, obviously, as the... Los Angelinos will do, um, but uh, you can attend the entire program for this reduced rate, not staying there. Um, so I strongly recommend it to you. My, my connections with Limud is I was one of the founders of Limud uh, years and years and years and years and years ago. Um, so, so I do strongly recommend it to you. Uh, okay, I, I'm just going to say, because it's absurd to meet on the 11th of Tevet, and not say something about the 10th of Tevet before coming to the Tishri roller coaster. And let me also say that it's absurd to try and deal with Tishri in one session and then devote the other two sessions to the comparatively trivial events of Hanukkah and Purim. So I'm assuming that you guys are in for the duration of this three session program. And therefore, if I don't finish with Tishri today, I may run Tishri on a bit into the next session before turning to Hanukkah. Okay, that's because there's just... I didn't plan the Jewish year. Whoever did wasn't thinking, okay? Um, uh, so, but I want to say something about the 10th of Tevet. Um, a minor fast uh, for us in the Northern Hemisphere, the most minor fast, uh, because there's hardly anything to it at all. Um, the only two fasts in the Jewish calendar that are 25 hours long, that go from sunset to nightfall, are Yom Kippur, of course, and Tisha B'Av, Tisha B'Av, the ninth of Av, which falls in midsummer. Makes it quite demanding. 
Um, all other fasts, and there are about uh, five or six of them, all other fasts go only from dawn to nightfall. So, of course, depending on whether they're in the summer or the winter, it depends on whether they're long or short events. And this, the 10th of Tevet, for us, is in midwinter, so it's the shortest fast possible. In England, it's even shorter than it is here. Um, it starts at about 6 o'clock in the morning and finishes at about uh, 5 o'clock in the evening. So, basically, you just skip lunch. Um, so, the 10th of Tevet, what's it about? Does anybody any idea? What does the 10th of Tevet commemorate? The breaching of the walls of Jerusalem by? By the Babylonians. Okay, so this is an event which must move you to tears every time you stop to think about it. In 587 BCE, I'm sure this probably depressed you all day long today, didn't it? One of those major things. In 587 BCE, uh, the Babylonians breached the walls of Jerusalem. Well, that's a reason for fasting, I guess, and, and that's obviously why you all did. I, I don't know if it moves you very much, the Tenth of Tevet. According to the tradition, there are two other reasons given. Anybody any idea what they are? It's the day on which Ezra died. Who was Ezra? And... Oh, okay, good, some of you know. Excellent. Um, and it's the day on which... We were forced to produce a Greek translation of the Torah. The Septuagint. All right? The Septuagint. This is um, a, a very uh, old and uh, highly respected translation of the Torah, the Septuagint. Uh, it's called the Septuagint because it was made by 70 people. It's Greek, uh, well, Latin, really, for 70. Um, and the Septuagint, according to Jewish tradition, right, um, 70 uh, scholars were, were not brought together, were separated up into 70 different rooms. And the idea was, by this um, unpleasant Hellenistic ruler, not Antiochus Epiphanes, about whom we'll talk next week, but another one, a Ptolemaic guy from Egypt. Um, the idea was that he would get these 70 scholars to translate the Torah into Greek in their 70 different rooms. And once you had 70 different translations, this would sow confusion and chaos in the Jewish world because there'd be 70 different takes on the Torah and, and the Jewish world would fall apart because everybody start arguing about what it really meant. Okay, you understand? That's a good plan. Right? Um, well, of course, we already have in the Jewish tradition the idea that every word of Torah has 70 faces. Right? So it, it wouldn't be surprising if you came up with 70 different translations because there's so many different ways of understanding this kind of multi-layered, complex text. So, I mean, if we just sat down to translate a line of, of, of text, it wouldn't be surprising if we came up with lots of different translations. Miraculously, if you believe in miracles... Miraculously, all 70 translators produced an identical text. And that text became the Septuagint. Okay, there you go. Isn't that amazing? That text became the Septuagint. Now, why would we fast? Because it's a day on which this miracle apparently happened that we produced the, the, the Septuagint. It's a very strange conception. You may or may not know that Muslims, I mean from Muslims, not 
idiotic Western ones, but from Muslims, right, um, will not refer to a translation of the Quran. They won't call it a translation. If you present them with an English Quran, they won't call this a translation. They'll call it an interpretation. Because they know that every time you translate text, you interpret it. That is, you can't. You know, especially when you're shifting cultures dramatically. Maybe if you translate something from Spanish into Portuguese, there may not be too great a cultural shift. But when you're translating something from Hebrew into English, then you really are in serious difficulties about how you shift cultures as you shift languages. Right? And so Muslims will talk about an interpretation of the Quran. And every time we read Jewish texts, not in the original, and most of us, I guess, are not skilled at reading Jewish texts in the original, we've got to know that we are getting the translator's take on the text. Right? If it's a good translation, then it's worth taking seriously. Right? But some translations are really bizarre. And many folk will spend a lot of time trying to make sense of a text which would be immediately simplified if we could access the original. Let me give you a very simple example. Um, and, and this not least uh, the Jewish annotated New Testament. Um, many of you will know that the prophecy uh, that a young woman will bear a child has been translated as a virgin will bear a child, giving rise to the whole doctrine of virgin birth. The Hebrew doesn't have to mean virgin at all. It can just mean young woman. Right? It doesn't mean to say it doesn't mean virgin, but it doesn't have to. Okay. One example. Another example, as you may know, Jehovah's Witnesses will not use blood transfusions because it says in the Torah that you shouldn't consume blood. Right? But it's perfectly clear from the Hebrew that this doesn't mean use, as in the modern sense of consumer. It means drink, swallow, eat. Right? And therefore, blood transfusions are not prohibited by that line. But if you read it from a translation, then it may be. Right? So the rabbis instituted, uh, or rather uh, noted, that on this particular fast day, the 10th of Tevet, we are commemorating the first translation of the Torah. Strange, that. Right? Is it a good thing or a bad thing? Should we mourn it, fast for it, or should we be grateful for the art scroll? Maybe you want to institute an art scroll fast. <laughs> up to you. Okay, all right, so uh, the Tishri roller coaster. Like I say, I wouldn't have designed the Jewish calendar this way. Right? In much the same way as I wouldn't have designed the Torah in the way in which it is. I wouldn't have put all the good stories into Bereshit, into Genesis. Right? It can get very tedious later on in the year. I'm on leprosy and lists and stuff, right? You get all the good stories up front, and the same thing seems to happen with Tishri. You get masses of stuff in Tishri, and then nothing happens for a month and a half, and, and, and so on. It's really badly designed. Now, uh, as Ari said, he admitted that he chose the title for this course, Clive's Take on the Holidays. I would never have chosen that title. <laughs> I would never have chosen that title because I speak English, all right? And in England, we don't call these holidays. You may be interested to know. In England, we call them festivals. Uh, and I mean, it's, it's only a technical thing, I guess. 
And of course the word holiday is a very precise, it's actually an excellent word to use in its origins because the word holiday, of course, originally was holy day. Right? The I was a Y. It was holy day, a holy day. And therefore, to call these holidays in the original meaning of the word is ideal. Right? Holy days. Right? But nowadays, to call them holidays, for many people, I think, in the West, suggests some kind of time off. Right? Nothing much to do. Leisure moments. Right? And of course, these festivals, these holy days, are not nothing to do, uh, but something different to focus on. They're quite busy, intense, demanding, potentially. They're not just time out, right? So anyway, as it happens, in Britain, as I say, we don't call them holidays, we call them festivals. There you go. Um, what's Rosh Hashanah about? What's it for? What is it? The beginning of the year. Excellent, very good. The first day of the seventh month. <laughs> the beginning of the year. <laughs> the original is Nissan. Hmm? The original is Nissan. The first the is, is, Nissan. is the first, the Nissan, exactly. Nissan is the first month of the year. So how does Rosh Hashanah become the beginning of the year? Well, what's uh, well, uh, why the beginning of the year? It's different. There's more of a spiritual renewal. Ah, more spiritual. What, why, why, why is it spiritual, Rosh Hashanah? What's it about? It's more of a, taking what, assessing what, where you've been for the year. And where, where do we get that from? Where does it say that then? That's what you do. You go to synagogue and you make. Oh, that's what we do. But where do we get it from? The Torah. Oh, the Torah. Excellent. What does it say about in the Torah about this first day of the seventh month? What does it call it, first of all? Holy convocation. Hmm? A holy convocation. A holy convocation. They're all holy convocations, right? What is it called, this particular one? Is it called Rosh Hashanah? No. No, absolutely not. Rosh Hashanah doesn't turn up until the Mishnah. All right? So that's rabbis. Um, what, what's it called in the Torah? Yom Teruah, yes. A day of blowing. <laughs> a day of blowing. Okay? And, and, okay, excellent, good. So now we're getting somewhere. It's none of your spiritual stuff, right? It just blows things, something. Okay, find a shofar and have a toot, and, and that's the day sorted. Okay, that's what it's all about. Blow. Right? A day of blowing, excellent. And, and, and why do we blow? According to the Torah. I'm sorry? The people in ancient times were way out. That's the way you got. We didn't have email then. Right, so we're blowing in order to tell people. Let people know what? So, so we're blowing in order to get them to come where? To the temple. Okay, so Rosh Hashanah was one of the occasions on which people must come to the temple, is that right? No, absolutely not, yes. Um, we have in the Torah, I, I just, look, guys, I'm not going to have any more time. We've only got about an hour or so left, 
I'm only going to be able to sow confusion in this session, okay? <laughs> right? You're going to leave utterly puzzled, that's all. There's not going to be any answers here. I'm just going to chop off your legs and destroy all your faith, and that'll be the end of the session, okay? You have to come back next week if you want anything reconstructed. Um, Folks, in the Torah there are three festivals on which the Jews are required to go to the temple. Right? Pesach, Shavuot, and Sukkot. These are the Shalosh Regalim, the three, as they call, foot festivals. I always wondered who had three feet, right? Um, but the, the three pilgrim festivals. These are the three occasions on which people were supposed to go to Jerusalem to the temple. Rosh Hashanah is not one of those. It is indeed a holy convocation, but it doesn't require everybody to go to the temple. So why are we blowing the shofar? To tell people that it's Rosh Hashanah, yes? Is that the idea? Rosh Hashanah. Yes, that's already that's already from the Psalms. So we're going a little bit later than the Torah. Um, why are we blowing the shofar? Why do you blow the shofar? I mean, why do you go and got to listen to the shofar? Why? Why? What's it for? Because it's nice, right? It's a bit of ethnic garnish. So you go, huh? Why are we blowing the shofar, guys? It's uplifting. Uplifting, is it? Yes. Oh, okay, good. If you do the action, then it works, yes? It says, right, the prayer book, blow the shofar at this point. Blow the shofar at this point. At last, a rabbinic master. Excellent. Right, would you like to come up here and do this? Yes. We blow to awaken. Awaken our spirituality, absolutely. And that's what Maimonides says. He comes in a long time later, right? Maimonides, 12th century rabbi, lived in Egypt most of the time, came from Spain originally, right? Um, Maimonides says, we blow the shofar in order to awaken our, uh, ourselves. It's, it's an alarm call, right? Now, I, I must uh, just kind of lay my cards on the table here so you know where I'm coming from. I, I come out of the Orthodox community. That's my formulation note very precisely. I come out of the Orthodox community, right? And uh, therefore, my liturgical experience, the way I daven, is, is the Orthodox way, right? And that's, that's the Tzidur and the Machsor that I use. So I am not familiar with reform and conservative modes, okay? So forgive me if I'm not accurate about the way in which you attend, if you're a part of such communities, the way in which your services work. Um, but what I'm referring to is the Orthodox liturgy. Okay, and as far as I know, the Orthodox liturgy's frame or form is largely reflected in the other denominations too. It may not be identical, but the frame and the form is largely reflected. I may be wrong about that. But let me tell you this. On the Rosh Hashanah, we have the longest Musaf in the world. The Musaf is the, uh, in the year. Uh, the Musaf is the additional service, right? Um, and uh, so every day there's three services, uh, evening, morning, and afternoon. And on festival days there's this Musaf. Um, many reform communities have done away with Musaf because it's largely about temple worship and reform communities are not aspiring to or have no particular desire to remember temple worship. But I believe that on the High Holy Days this is so significant an element of the liturgy that uh, on the Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, I believe most reform communities do indeed retain a Musaf, I, I, I believe. Whether they do or whether they don't. The Orthodox Musaf, long, long piece of davening, um, has three parts to it, three, uh, three themes. 
These themes are reflected in all of Rosh Hashanah, right? They're called the Malchiot, the, the kingship theme, the Zichronot, uh, from Yuskor, Zecher, the remembrance theme, and the Shofarot, the Shofar theme, the blowing of the Shofar theme, okay? In these uh, elements, in these three parts of the Musaf, it goes on and on and on about how important uh, kingship is or how important the shofar is or whatever it is. And it gives ten quotations from the Tanakh, from the Torah, from the Nevi'im and the, from the Ketuvim that refer to remembrance or kingship or the shofar, right? So if you look at that section about shofarot, ten quotations and a whole stack of stuff about it, you would be able to find there what the shofar is about. Why do we blow it, Right? You'd think, wouldn't you? I mean, that's old stuff. The, 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 the text of the, of the service goes way back. I mean, we're talking about, well, Ezra, we mentioned he died yesterday. Um, Ezra uh, and the men of the great assembly, the Anshe Knesset Hagadolah, from about the 4th, 5th century BCE, those guys set down the basic frame of our services. And, and they set down the basic frame of the Amidah in each service. So they set down the frame of the Rosh Hashanah Musaf. And, and so you would think, if we want to understand why do we blow the Shofar, these are the most ancient examples, because the Torah gives us no clue. The Torah says, this is the day on which you should blow the Shofar, but I'm not telling you why. Okay? That's the Torah. And you're just left to figure it out for yourself. And then the Anshekhanes said, the men of the Great Assembly in the 4th century, 5th century BCE, constructed a service which devoted a section to the blowing of the shofar. And you think, right, here at least we'll get some kind of reference as to why we're doing it. And it doesn't say anything about waking us up to spirituality. It doesn't say what Maimonides says. It says one of the most remarkable chutzpah things you've ever come across. <laughs> It says we blow the shofar in order to get God to pay attention. Ah, I told you I was going to tell you something you didn't know. Right? We blow the shofar in order to get God to pay attention. That God says blow the shofar in order to attract, you know, to make me concentrate on this day. That's what the liturgy says. You don't have to believe it. You don't even have to say it. Right? But that's what the liturgy says. We blow the shofar in order to get God to pay attention. Now, let's go to the second element. The second element, I mean, not in this order necessarily, is the zikronot, the remembrance element. Right? Again, ten quotations, big stack of stuff, all about remembrance and stuff like What's being remembered on Rosh Hashanah? Because Rosh Hashanah is also called Yom HaZikaron, the day of remembering. Okay, so what are, what's being remembered here? The Akedah, the binding of Isaac, perhaps, yes. The creation. The creation, where do we get that from? Reishi. Yeah, but why do we say it's got to do with the creation? Because it celebrates the beginning of the world. Celebrates the beginning of the world. And how do we know that? Yes, it says Hayomaratolam, since the day on which the world was created. But how do we know? Where do we get that from? It comes from the Talmud. 
In the Talmud, the rabbis had a debate. When was the world created? And half of the rabbis said Nisan, springtime, and half of the rabbis said Tishri, autumn time. And so they had a big debate, and they couldn't decide. So they did the American thing. They took a vote. And the majority decided on Rosh Hashanah, and that's why we celebrate the creation of the world on Rosh Hashanah. What if they were wrong? <laughs> We've been getting it wrong all these years. How, how dare the rabbis commit the Jewish people to celebrating the creation of the world on some day that they plucked out of the air when it could be any day? That's the wrong question, of course. Because, of course, we cannot say what day the world was created. It's a stupid, stupid idea. The point is, if you want to celebrate the creation of the world, then you better pick a day. And why did they pick Rosh Hashanah? Well, of course, half of them didn't. Half of them liked the idea of Nisan, right? They liked the idea of springtime. Well, that's a great time, isn't it, for things to start, spring, everything gets going. That's a natural beginning. Except that the Jewish dynamic doesn't go that way. When do we start the day? In the evening. We start the day in autumn time. We go through autumn, winter, spring, summer. That's how the day works. That's how the year works. We start on the downbeat. And, of course, the rabbis noticed that God said, celebrate the first day of the seventh month. But I'm not telling you why. And so they noticed that this is the only festival which is required to be celebrated at the beginning of the month. Right? The two, two of the big festivals, Pesach and Sukkot, are in the middle of the month, the full moon. Right? Shavuot is a bit different because it's hooked up to Pesach. But this is the only one for the beginning of the month. So maybe this is a clue that this is about a starting time. So yes, indeed, we sing today is the day of the birthday, the beginning of the, the creation. We know it. We know it because that was the decision by the rabbis. Right? We go by the majority. That's how we know. We don't know. All right? So... What is it we're supposed to be remembering? Isn't it that uh, we are descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? We don't need to remember that on Rosh Hashanah because we should know it anyway. Right? The, the, the rabbis wouldn't have suggested that we need to devote our attention to thinking about that. That should be just kind of who you are, right, in, in, in rabbinic thought. It would be surprising to want to make focus on that. Again, guys, remember how chutzpah it was, the shofar? We blow it in order to get God to pay attention. We're not supposed to be doing any remembering. Thank you. Right? God's supposed to be remembering. Right? What we're saying on the Rosh Hashanah is God, pay attention. Remember all those occasions. Remember the binding of Isaac. Remember how our ancestor was such a fine guy. Well, then you better treat us nicely. Right? And then we come to the malchiot, the kingship elements. Right, who's the king? God, of course, yes. Now, again, those, I don't know how it works in, in other liturgies, but in the Orthodox liturgy, um, I mean, I'm a gabbler. If any of you here are members of an Orthodox synagogue or you attended Orthodox synagogues, you will know people who do Orthodox davening right, don't spend a lot of time on it. 
Let's get it over with. Move on. Life's too short, right? Good, done, excellent, next. Right? That's the general orthodox manner. Yeah? I mean, there are some people nowadays who like to drag it out endlessly, but if that was the plan, they would never have made so much of it. But anyway, right? I'm, I'm a gabbler. I would get on with it. And, and if you're a gabbler and you daven every morning, it, it goes into a kind of mantra, a sort of uh, dynamic, and you're not, it's easy. It's a, done, okay? Easy, every morning, very simple. And what do those rabbis go and do? They stick in little landmines to blow you up as you're tripping through all of this. You go, bang, they change a word. One word, how mean is that, right? <laughs> And they change it for a few days and then they change it back again. And then they stick in a different phrase and then they take that out. And then they put in a paragraph and take it out. It's really the most confusing thing in the world and it unfortunately makes you slow down and pay attention. That's, that's what it does, right? One of these little tricks is that in the daily service where we refer to God as God, during the days of Rosh Hashanah to Yom Kippur, those ten days, we change the word God to king. We don't say holy God, we say holy king. Now you tell me, guys, which has higher status, God or king? God, right? And so what do we do on these ten awesome days? We say to God, actually, no, king. We demote God. Why? Hmm? So he'll forgive us on Yom Kippur. So that he'll forgive us on Yom Kippur. <laughs> Perhaps. It's, a, it's, a, it's an odd thing to do. You would think on these days, on these days of awe, that's what Yamim Noraim means, days of awesomeness. Right? And by the way, awesome is a, a term of some significance, not a casual term as it's become in America. Right? Meaning, yeah, I like it. Right? Um, it, it, these days of awe, you would think that we would put God on the very pinnacle as God, but instead we say, You're king. You behave like, act like, should be a king. And therefore, what we've got to understand too is what the Jews think a king is about. Yes, you were going to say. But wouldn't we be saying that on this occasion of all, he's a god? Because why would we be bringing him down? So we're kind of constructing a relationship because it's not too easy to do with a god, but we might be able to do it with a king. Maybe. Avinu Malkenu. That, that's a, such a beautifully chutzpahic thing, isn't it? Yeah, you may be king, but you're also dad. <laughs> right? That's kind of cute. Yes? I'm not sure it's demotion, because one of the problems we had was when we wanted an earthly king, and God said, you're going to be sorry. So maybe it's saying, we no longer really want an earthly king, we'll trust you to be our king. 
Well, interestingly, of course, it wasn't God who said you're going to be sorry. It was Samuel. Right? Samuel said you're going to be sorry. And God said, I don't know what you're getting upset about, Samuel. It's me they're offending, not you. Right? And Samuel spent all his time saying to the Israelites, who said, can't we have a king? We'd like to be like everybody else. And Samuel said, no, you don't need a king. You've got God in any way. What's wrong with me? And, and, right? and he goes off to God and grumbles. And God says, oh, stop grumbling. If they want a king, let them have a king. Right? We've already got the laws of kingship in the Torah. I mean, it's, it's not surprising that they want a king. They get a king. But Samuel at that point does the most remarkable thing. Samuel invents something constitutionally which had never existed on this planet before so far as we know. Samuel invented the constitutional monarch. Right? Samuel invented the idea that the king is subject to the law, not the definition of it. Right? That means, what Samuel said was he went back to the people and he said, oh, all right, then I've t- spoken to God and you can have a king. I'll tell you it'll be trouble and you'll be sorry, but you can have a king. All right? But don't worry, because I'm not going to drop out and leave you all. I'm going to hang around and make sure the king behaves. And this idea that the king has to follow the law not define the law is a remarkable invention which only really came back into recognition some several hundreds thousands of years later right yes But even as you try and explain that, don't you feel the diminishment of the idea? Right, but I'm saying to others around us, we are pressured Mm. by other societies around us. So maybe at this time especially, you know, making... It It may be so, but... But to the others, well, we have a god, but he's approachable as a king. It may be so, but I think think on Rosh Hashanah we're very um, focused on our own attentions here, not trying to explain something to others. But I think, you know, nearest the point that we want him to treat us right. What we're saying to God when we say, God, don't forget you're a king, right? We're saying, look, gods do whatever they like. Kings have to follow the rules, right? It's part of the same chutzpahdik process. Remember what the relationship is. Remember how we behave, the memories. Pay attention, God, right? And behave like a, a fair fellow. It's the most remarkable stuff of Rosh Hashanah, the beginning of the year. As you may know, in fact, there are four new years in, in the Jewish year. Don't be too surprised at that. We have lots of new years in the secular year as well. I mean, after all, when does the school year start? It starts around the time of Rosh Hashanah. Then you have January. Nobody's really too sure what that's about. Um, and, and then probably, I don't know, do you have a tax year? When does your taxation start? Hmm? That starts at hmm? April. April? April? Okay. What, what date in April? Okay, whatever. Um, but we have lots of different years, yes? Um, in, in Britain, we have years for grouse shooting and uh, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, 
So having several different new years for different purposes is not surprising. We've got four. Uh, and this one, Rosh Hashanah, is one of our new years. Right? And it prefaces, it begins a period of the ten days of repentance. Yes, you've heard of this. Yes, you made the Shabbat, the ten days of repentance, which finish with Yom Kippur, exactly. Now, does the Torah connect Rosh Hashanah to Yom Kippur? No. That's a later invention. Okay? There is nothing in the Torah that suggests that Yom Kippur is related to Rosh Hashanah. And despite the fact that we call Rosh Hashanah the beginning of the ten days of repentance, you can read the entire Machsor from beginning to end and you won't find anything much about repentance on Rosh Hashanah. We don't do any repenting on Rosh Hashanah. That's devoted to Yom Kippur, the day of repentance. Strange or what? Did you notice that? Also, you may be interested to notice that on Yom Kippur, you have a great long list of al khaits you know, for the sin which we've committed. Blah, 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 blah. Right? I don't know if you've noticed that if I were to say to you, tell me uh, 20 Jewish things you've got wrong this year, right? I wouldn't be surprised if a good number of the things you... I mean, I'm sure you're all perfect and <laughs> struggling to come up with 20, right? But I, I wouldn't be surprised if a good number of these things were what we might loosely call ritual things, right? Um, the rabbis divide the mitzvot, the, the rules of Torah, uh, into two kinds... Well, they divide them in lots of different ways, but one of the divisions is the, to divide them into two different uh, kinds of mitzvot. Those benadam lemakom between God and, and, and between humanity and heaven, what we might loosely call ritual mitzvot, right? And benadam lechaveror between uh, mankind and his and his neighbour, right? Uh, what we might loosely call social mitzvot, right? So uh, keeping kosher uh, doesn't have any visible impact on my next door neighbour, whether I do or whether I don't. That's something ritual, right? Or keeping Shabbat, so it's something ritual. But uh, giving tzedakah or honouring the property of my neighbour, right, and being careful with it, that, that would be ben adam l'chaviror, between a, 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 a man and his neighbour, right, or a woman and her neighbour. Um, so these are the kind of two divisions. When you look at the al the list of, for the sins which we have committed by, it's a remarkable fact that pretty well all of them are not to do with these ritual things. Right? Hmm? Well, yes, yes, yes. I mean, it says the things that we know, the things which we don't know. But the point is that it's about almost all of them, as they name them, are about social relationships. About social relationships. And yet you would have thought, I think most people would have thought, if you say... We're going to make a list of all the sins that the Jews might have committed. You know, what, what should we write down first? Right? Many of us might have thought, ah, oh, right, well, kind of Jewish sins, all right, for the Jews who didn't keep kosher, for the Jews who didn't keep Shabbat, for the Jews who didn't, you know, and we'll list all of those technical things. But the al don't do that. For the ways in which we've spoken gossip to each other, for the ways in which we've slandered each other, for the ways in which we've not been honest in business, for the ways in which, you know, those kinds of things are what's listed in the al Um And that's quite a surprise, 
I think, for most people, who tend to think that Judaism is preoccupied with technical behaviors. And yet on Yom Kippur, it's preoccupied with social behavior, with decent behavior between people. That's its major emphasis. That's not to say that there aren't some al which are a bit more technical, but its major emphasis. Have a look at the list next time. You'll see that it's pretty well all about social behavior. Right? That's Yom Kippur. Now, on Yom Kippur, um, what, what, what's the primary factor or feature of Yom Kippur observance? What are we doing? Fast. We fast, absolutely. And what does it say in the Torah? What are we supposed to do on Yom Kippur? We're supposed to? Afflict our soul. Excellent. Afflict our soul. Hmm? Yeah. Afflict our soul. Excellent. So how do we afflict our soul? We fast. Now, I don't know about you, but I think fasting is an intensely physical thing to do. Right? What is the effect of fasting? Why do we fast on Yom Kippur? So proving that we're human and not an animal by saying no to food. Right. We have to do that all day long. Can't we just skip breakfast? Like angels. Yes, I've heard that. Like angels, right? Uh, because angels don't have breakfast. Yes. And, and so we're we're supposed to be like angels, fluttering around in an ideal form. Um, uh, do, you, do you feel like angels on Yom Kippur? Does that, um, what does the effect of fasting have on you? Hmm? Supposed to make you think of those who don't have what It makes you think, oh, it's supposed to. Does it? No. Yeah, I'm sorry, I don't know your name. That's you are? Right. Tamar. Tamar. Tamar? Right, so Tamar said it's supposed to make you think of those who don't have, right? But, I mean, maybe, I'm sure some of you are spiritual giants, and it does, but for most of us, ordinary folk, it doesn't make you think of other people who don't have. It makes you think of you who doesn't have, right? And you spend all day long thinking, oh, how much longer? I don't know if I can do this. Right? This is no spiritual experience. It's like supposed to afflict our souls. It doesn't say afflict our bodies. It says afflict our souls. And what do we do? We go and give up food. Some people say, well, it's so that you can concentrate on the prayers more. But you don't. You concentrate on being hungry. If they said, look, just nip outside and have a cup of tea and come back in, right? you'd be happy. You'd go, yeah, good idea. Now I can really concentrate. But we don't. We spend all our time waiting, wondering when it's going to be, if only, right? It's, fasting is not conducive to spiritual clarity, I think. For most of us, is it? Does it? Yes? Isn't there a connection between body and soul in the Jewish world, anyhow? Well, um, I, I think this is instant proof, isn't it, that there must be. Uh, instant proof that there must be. Y yes, uh, Atara, yes? Because you're bringing your body to a different, like you're afflicting your body, you're afflicting your soul. 
Well, absolutely. But, I mean, Shabbat is just so much better organised, isn't it? <laughs> you know, I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have invented Yom Kippur. I mean, it's just not, it's not a clever idea. Ah, so in case you don't feel half dead, then you fast, and then you do. Yeah, yeah. well, uh, there, is, uh, there is supposed to be something sort of otherworldly about it. This is why uh, some of you may have seen the custom of, of uh, some men, in particular, to wear a kittle, a white um, garment, which is a bit like a shroud. Um, there's something of that, or something of purity, and somebody mentioned the angels to be like the angels. Um, but, but of course, actually, what's interesting is that there's never been a, a Jewish aspiration to be like angels, right? Is it quite an interesting statement? People do say that on Yom Kippur we don't eat, so as we're like angels. But Jews have never wanted to be like angels because, as far as angels are concerned, their downside is they have no free will; they can't do anything, right? And Jews are actually, at some level, quite contemptuous of angels, really. I mean, they're just kind of automata. And Jews have always valued the capacity to make choices, which angels can't do. But I, I just want to come back to Antara's thing about, um, uh, about Shabbat. Um, Shabbat recognizes the interplay, uh, which is what Tamara referred to, between body and soul. This, uh, this dualism, which um, became particularly popular through Plato and Aristotle, was taken up very enthusiastically by Christians, is something about which Jews are quite ambivalent. Right? We do have a little bit of that talk. We certainly do talk about body and soul. Um, it's not very authentic, not very ancient Jewishly, but we did take it up. Um, but on Shabbat, the dynamic of Shabbat is such. Those of, uh, of you who keep a full Shabbat, and a lot of Jews are not good with um, these things. You know, They start off very well. Jews are good at starting. They're very bad at finishing things, right? You know, it's a bit like, well, I have a wild bar mitzvah. You know, now I am a Jew. I'll oh, forget it, right? We, we, do, we do that starting. We've got a big wedding under the chuppah, Jewish home, you know. Then what? Right? Yom Kippur, Rosh Hashanah, New Year, let's go. Oh, forget it, right? We're really good at starting stuff off. We do it on Shabbat as well, right? We, we start Pesach. Everybody starts Pesach. We're a Seder, Pesach. By about day two, it's kind of, oh, it's enough already. I can't be doing that. We never even get to Shavuot, most people. Right? The vast numbers of Jews, it's really called Shavuot. Right? No, 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 no idea what that is at all, right? So... What we have, you know, we start Shabbat, so the same thing happens, you know, huge numbers of Jews uh, get going with Shabbat. Oh, must light the candles, you know, must say kiddush, you know, not so sure. Okay. But by the time they wake up the next morning, you know, it's not Shabbat anymore, it's become Saturday for huge proportions of Jews. Some Jews make it to shul, right, on Shabbat morning, and it's still Shabbat. By the time they get home for lunch, it's become Saturday. Some people get through lunch, and then by the afternoon, it's become Saturday. You know, these things that kind of just diminishes, diminishes. A tiny band of survivors get through to Havdalah, right? <laughs> Finally kind of, sort of drag their way onto their closing <laughs> show. It's a very strange thing. Jews are very good at starting stuff. They're really bad at finishing off, right? Uh, but the dynamic of Shabbat, for, for, for those of you who keep a whole Shabbat, the whole day, the full works, right? I think that uh, those people would say that the best bit of Shabbat is Shabbat afternoon. Right? Shabbat afternoon. Because what happens is you start Shabbat 
with a whole lot of physical needs. You're tired, you're hungry, you need all the kind of social chat, you've got to get together with people, you haven't had time to, to communicate, to connect, right? So Friday night is very intense physically. It's all kind of physical needs. You need to, to rest and to have sex and do all of those things that are needed on Friday night. By Shabbat morning, it's already starting, those physical needs are starting to fade. You've fulfilled them, you're, you're rested, you've, you've talked. It's a, right? it's a much more, it's a calmer mood as you go through Shabbat morning. By Shabbat afternoon, right, there's a tradition of having three meals on Shabbat, and the Shabbat afternoon meal is called Sudash Lishit, the third meal, right? And the Shabbat afternoon, the Sudash Lishit is not normally a lot of food. It's just a snack, really, so we can get together. Because the eating isn't the issue anymore. The fellowship is the issue. The being together is the issue. There's a kind of a calm, a sort of ease and wistfulness of Shabbat afternoon, sort of gentleness of it, a, a, a fading into simplicity of Shabbat afternoon. Right? That dynamic recognizes on Shabbat both the physical and the spiritual needs of a human being. And it balances it. They kind of go in, in uh, converging, crossing uh, lines, right? Where the physical needs are, are, are fulfilled intensely on Friday night. By Shabbat afternoon, they're kind of diminished. Whereas the spiritual needs on Friday night maybe are not so intense. It's all very social and connected. By Shabbat afternoon, it's kind of gentled down into something more thoughtful, more simple, more reflective, more echoing of bigger issues. Right? But Yom Kippur doesn't do that. Yom Kippur pitches high, falls smack on its face about halfway through, and then we drag ourselves over the finishing line. It's very strange. It's very, it's very unkind to the physical reality of human beings. And Judaism isn't normally unkind that way. It's unsympathetic. And I want to come back to your comment before about proving we're not like animals, right? I, I, I don't know your name. No, Lois. Lois? Lois. Okay. So I, I want to just take that because I think it's a very rich idea. I want to work with it a bit. Um, this idea on Yom Kippur, um, it, it came to me very forcefully back in 1973. I was only about two then. Um, back in 1973, uh, you may remember, Maybe it didn't hit America in the same way, I don't know. Um, but the Yom Kippur War resulted in an oil embargo uh, by the Middle Eastern states. Um, uh, and maybe America kept going, I don't know. Did it, it reverberated here too? Okay. So in Britain, certainly, within days, um, things were seizing up. And we were planning to introduce rationing of petrol, and people were queuing for miles to you know, fill up their cars and, and there were going to be days on which you couldn't use your car and everybody getting tickets, all the Jews praying for Shabbat to be the day, you know, all that stuff, right? All of that was going on. Um, or not, depending on where you are. Okay. Um, so uh, it, it struck me then that this was an allegory for Yom Kippur, right? That we go through life and I, Americans and Britons are very similar in this, I think, behaving as if we can do anything we like. Right? I, I want to fly to the other side of the world. I'll fly to the other side of the world. I want to do what I want to do. I'll do it. I want to speak to somebody. I'll, I'll speak to them. Like, you know, there's no limit 
on what I want to do. And if there is a limit, give me another few weeks or months or years, we'll work it out and sort the problem. And I'll do it. Somebody will do it. If I can't do it, somebody will do it. Because right? we're masters of the universe. We're in charge of everything and anything. We can do whatever we like. Nothing can stop us. America, the very pinnacle of modern civilization, will just plow its way through and solve all the problems. And then somebody somewhere turns a tap and we go, oh no, I don't know if we can carry on going for another three weeks. How are we going to live? We can't possibly manage. The whole world's gone to pieces. We're never going to survive. This is a catastrophe. How do we get out of it? We suddenly realize that our sense of being utterly in charge, supreme beings, is as thin as the veneer of the crust of the earth on the volcanoes beneath. We suddenly know it. And it seems to me that Yom Kippur is like that. We go around on you know, every other day and it's fine, and no problem, I can manage, right? I, I, I don't need, what do I need God for? What do I need religion for? What do I need prayer for? What do I need any of this stuff for? I'll decide what I want to do. I'm in charge of my life. Right? Nothing's going to stop me. I'm just fine. And then somebody says, well, just don't eat. Right? And by about 7 o'clock on the first evening, I'm already thinking, oh, I don't think I can cope with this. Right? I can't, well, am I going to get through the day? I've gone already two hours without a drink, I'll die. It seems to me it's like that. That's, it's not to prove we're animals. It's to prove how utterly dependent we are. To remind us how utterly, utterly dependent we are. If you don't want to drag God into it, just drag other people into it. <laughs> that if somebody doesn't deliver some food to me, I don't know where to get it from. I can't dig it up, I can't grow it, I can't slaughter it, I don't know how it works. My huge civilization has made me completely helpless or dependent. Seems to me that Yom Kippur is bringing me very closely, firmly face to face with that. Yes. Is it part of Yom Kippur? I've always thought that the fasting on Yom Kippur also had to do with uh, a way of our atoning for whatever kinds of things we've done during the year that we're not very proud of. Oh, for sure, it is a day of repentance. No doubt about it. It's called That's that. That's what the fast is. Well, I'm, but I'm not sure how fasting facilitates repentance. That makes you think uh, about uh, why am I fasting? I'm fasting because I feel bad about some of the things that happened this past year. If that works for you, good. I would say, I mean, you know, really, if it works, then fine. And, and we're very good at repeating what we've been told, yes, right? We've been told it should work like that, and so we say it. But we've got to be honest, too. Does it really work like that? Does it really make us think about the things? Or does it make us think about the fact that I'd really quite like a cup of tea now? <laughs> also, right? Also. So, I mean, that's all I'm saying. If it works like that, good. And that's often what we're told. But I don't think it works like that. And, and, and what I would want to introduce is that when we're supposed to think about our weaknesses and our faults and our failings, right, one of the things that needs to happen in order to do that is we need to kind of get down off our ladder, our conviction that, you know, we're fine, right? Just need to stop and, and say, actually, you know, I need so many people around me. 
I am so dependent. I'm so helpless here. I, I'm not sure that I am, in fact, the king of the universe that I like to think I am most of the time. And that might make it possible for me to start to examine myself. So it's not that the fasting frees me up. It's that the fasting cuts me down. That's, that's my understanding. Yes, yes, yes. yes sir. Well, this is, this is all true. There's also a, a training and discipline that's built into the fasting that if these things are important to think about and to consider and to be with, they're important enough to be with if you're feeling well and if you're not feeling well, and if you're well fed and if you're hungry and if you're well rested and if you're tired. Well, that's true, but remember that Judaism already has built in a manner of disciplining yourself on a daily basis, right? The, the, the laws of kashrut, if we're talking about food disciplines, the laws of kashrut are there clearly and more continuously um, to, to draw people, people's attention to the need to be disciplined. There wouldn't be, a, a, for that reason, a necessary reason to stop eating altogether. Something else is going on there, something more intense, something more demanding in the traditional mode of things than the simple business of disciplining yourself. Of not, I mean, we now live in a world, uh, I think, uh, especially this affluent world in which we live, um, in which just about anything that moves and a lot of things that don't, you kind of pick up and shove in your face. It's all, it's all food, isn't it? Everything's food, whatever it is, anything works. And, and uh, an increasing lack of... Of, um, of sensibility in a sense. You know, if somebody eats it, I'll eat it, that, that kind of approach. Um, and, and so there is that discipline. They go, look, yes, of course it's edible, but don't eat it. Right? That discipline, uh, which is quite challenging for, for many, um, but, but that's different to the Yom Kippur business of not fasting. Um, over here, and then, yes. Uh, as a matter of fact, Shalom Aleichem in his stories about his people in Kasrilovka, Points makes the point that the fasting is not the most important, but those people are going from to their customers, to their friends, to their partners, and so on, asking for mechila erev yom kippur. And if I have sinned against you, please forgive me. And that's the ultimate ultimate uh, effect of yom kippur, rather than the fast. He doesn't say don't fast, but the story points out that the ultimate is the Ben Adam Chaveror, that the, uh, that the forgiveness exists. Okay, so this is Shalom Aleichem, and Shalom Aleichem records this, this uh, uh, practice, this custom. Um, but it, it's not the universal custom uh, amongst uh, the most observant Jews. Amongst the most observant Jews, they backfilled the calendar into Elul, into the month that precedes Tishri. Um, as you probably all know, uh, in Jewish tradition, it's understood that you cannot do repentance. You cannot atone for a sin between people until you've attempted to put it right with the person concerned. Right? You, ca you can't um, uh, you know, gossip about somebody uh, and then go to God and say, I'm sorry about gossiping. You've got to go to that person first and say, I'm sorry about what I said. I take it back. I didn't mean it, whatever it is. Right? And, and be sincere about it and seek their forgiveness. If they're so 
angry or vindictive or whatever, that they don't give their forgiveness. There's nothing much you can do about that. But you must sincerely seek their forgiveness. Once you've done that, then you can go to God and say, I'm sorry. So, you understand this. You can't rob a bank, stick the money in your bank account, and then go to God and say, sorry. <laughs> right? The first thing you've got to do is you've got to go to the bank or the police or whatever and hand the money back and say, I'm sorry, I committed the... And then you can say to God, um, I'm sorry, right? So this idea that you must correct your behavior with people before you correct your behavior with God is a strong idea. And it's been backfilled into the month of Elul, luckily, because there's nothing else going on in Elul, right? So, so during Elul, in certain parts of the community, and I, I warmly recommend this to you if you don't do it already, during Elul, people are phoning folk they've not been in touch with for a while, getting in contact with family they haven't spoken to, speaking to people whom they might have fallen out with, and saying, you know, I'm really sorry, I don't want to start Rosh Hashanah with bad feeling between us or without contact or without communication. Can, can we make sure that everything's good and square between us so that when I come to Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, I can put this, you know, I can face God with a clear conscience. It's a lovely practice. Um, and, uh, you know, Elul, with uh, people getting in touch and people you haven't spoken to for a while, um, and, and people about whom it might have been a bit prickly for one reason or another, um, you know, to try and smooth that out in this month before. What it does suggest, then, is that Yom Kippur, you know, we, we said it's about repenting. Definitely it is that. Kippur means, means atonement. So it's supposed to be atoning. Um, so Yom Kippur is a day of atonement, and many people say that it's a kind of a stock take of the year. You know, you're looking back over the year. But if that were the case, it would be in the last 10 days of the year, not in the first 10 days of the year. Nobody does a stock take at the beginning. You do a stock take at the end. So in fact, what's happened by backfilling it into Elul, the Elul experience is the stock take. The Rosh Hashanah to Yom Kippur period is the springboard into the year. Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur are forward-looking, not backward-looking. You look backward in order to determine next steps. Now, we're all familiar with the idea of New Year's resolutions. The same concept exists, that in the new year you determine to improve your life. You're going to make some resolutions about making things better. It's not good enough simply to go to God and say, you know, over the last uh, 10 years I've come every year and told you I'm going to try and be better and I'm still doing the same thing. Right? It's not good enough. You should be saying, I am really going to try and change. It's, these are supposed to be real moments of self-rejuvenation. Right? And unfortunately, I think for most of us, the ritual becomes so big and complicated that we forget the, the, the practice, um, uh, the, the purpose of the practice, as it were. Um, and, and I think it's uh, quite um, useful to try and come back to what's going on. And the fact that we have so many of us uh, received all of these different uh, practices, the blowing of the shofar or the fasting or whatever, and nobody really bothers much to examine them. That's one of the reasons why I want to do this session with you. Right? To examine them, to think about what really are we trying to achieve out of all of this. Now, uh, folks, to try and cover Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur in the, in the space of, a, uh, of an hour or an hour and a half is, is disgracefully superficial. Um, but I'm going to move on. Uh, or rather, I'm going to move back. Because I'm going to come to the third of Tishri. Right? Rosh Hashanah, two days. It's two days in Israel as well. Right, it's the one festival which is two days in Israel. Um, Rosh Hashanah, uh, the first and second of Tishri, 
The third of Tishri is a minor <coughs> fast. A minor fast called the fast of Gedalia. Now, Gedalia is an entirely obscure man uh, about whom this fast was uh, instituted. Uh, and I must say that personally, I found it very hard to find purpose in this fast, especially coming straight after Rosh Hashanah. Because, I mean, surely Rosh Hashanah to Yom Kippur is supposed to be concentrating on this dynamic, on the, on the repentance cycle, on the getting from Rosh Hashanah to Yom Kippur. That, right? By the way, as I say, the Torah doesn't connect the two of them. The connecting of Rosh Hashanah to Yom Kippur and making Rosh Hashanah something to do with repentance and bringing them together, that's, that's all not Torah. Right? It's really important to remember how much of our Judaism we get from the Talmud. Right? Some of us like to be impatient with the rabbis and say, a bunch of old men telling us what to do. Right? But in fact, just about all of our Jewish life and practice has been determined by the rabbinical texts. Of the you know, there's not a Jew in the world that looks at the text in the Shema that says you shall write these words on the doorposts of your house and upon your gates. There's not a Jew in the world who looks at that line and says to themselves, if they're going to do anything about it at all, they take a little piece of parchment, they write certain words on it, and they stick it in a little box, and they put it on the top third, sloping inwards, or the right-hand doorpost, and so on. Right? It's not a Jew in the world who does it differently. It's nobody going, well, it says in the Torah, I should write these on the doorpost. I'm going to write them. Right? I'm not going to write these words. I'm going to write those words, because that's the words I think I'm going to... They don't. We're completely driven by the rabbinical tradition. Right? We just might as well know that, uh, and, and then struggle with it as we do, because the Jews are the people who struggle with God. That's what Israel means, right? So we've got Rosh Hashanah, we've got Yom Kippur, we've connected the two together, and then we go and stick in this fast, which is a complete distraction. On the third, on the day after Rosh Hashanah, there we are feeling all spiritual and uplifted, and, blah, blah, and then we have a fast. Right? For some people, they think, well, I've eaten so much for two days, it's kind of handy, right? But that's not the intention. It's not a kind of detox fast. Gedalia is an obscure fellow who was put in charge of the um, residual population of the land of, of Judah uh, after the Babylonians had destroyed the temple and taken the Israelites off, or the Jews off into Babylon. He left behind, Nebuchadnezzar left behind a chap called Gedalia to look after the land manage it as best he could. Not in Jerusalem, because they weren't allowed to live in Jerusalem. And Gedalia called together on Rosh Hashanah, the sort of, I suppose we'd say, if we think about uh, Afghanistan or someplace like that, the warlords, the, the chieftains of the Judean population that was left, called them together to his uh, governor's dwelling. Um, he was supported by Babylonian soldiers who'd been left behind to keep the he called these guys together to effectively say to them, let's spend Rosh Hashanah together and let's manage as best we can. All right? This is the last bit of um, non-independence that we have, but it's left to us to do the best we can to keep this thing, this show on the road somehow. All right? And he was assassinated. He was assassinated by a chap called Netanyahu. Um, and he was assassinated. And he was assassinated on Rosh Hashanah. The rabbis instituted a fast. On, of course, you couldn't have a fast on Rosh Hashanah. So the very next day, the third of, third of Tishri, the fast of Gedalia. Uh, and, and this, because this was such a shocking thing. Right? Uh, and, uh, so we have this fast. 
I must admit that I never found it easy to get enthusiastic about the Vasta Gedalia. It's all the wrong time. Uh, but now, I don't, in my head, I don't call it Tzom Gedalia, Vasta Gedalia. In my head, I call it Tzom Yitzchak. And I don't find it difficult to take seriously at all. I think it's the same story with Yitzchak Rabin. The same accusation. This is a man who's selling out. This is a man who's compromising too much. This man ought to fight more furiously against our enemies. This man should stand up for us rather than give in. He's selling out and better dead than in power. And so now in my mind, I think of Tzom Gedalia as Tzom Yitzchak. And it seems to me to be entirely opposite that during this period of time when the Jews collectively atone for their sins, we might have a day to remember the assassination of Gedalia Yitzchak. So that's what I do with that. Um, the folks, uh, this is only just getting started into Tishrei. Because five days after Yom Kippur, Sukkot starts. Right? And interestingly enough, although the rabbis connect Rosh Hashanah with Yom Kippur, although there's no necessity to do that, they don't connect Yom Kippur with Sukkot, really. I mean, they say that you should start building your Sukkah immediately Yom Kippur is finished. You hammer in the first nail, right? Those of us who still do hammering in of nails, or get a man in to hammer in the nail, <laughs> right? Um, but they don't really try, try and connect the two, Yom Kippur and Sukkot, thematically, except in one strange way. Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, in the whole calendar, are the two most universalistic of the Jewish festivals. Right? Our other festivals are all to do with the history of the Jews. Pesach, or Hanukkah, you're shaking your head, sir. Well, Pesach, freedom. Yeah, Pesach's about the Jewish freedom. Right? And Pesach is a, categorically a story of the Jews. We can extrapolate out of that values. Of course we can. Right? But the reason for Pesach is because of the Jewish experience. Right? And, and of course I know it's the, the, the modern trend um, to, uh, to make it a general festival of freedom and pay attention to the freedoms and the understandable demands of others for freedom. But the essence of Pesach is about the Jewish experience. Whereas the essence of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, interestingly enough, is about all of humanity. When we talk about God um, judging, right, and determining who will live and who will die and all those kinds of things, it's about all of humanity, not about Jews. And the remembering that it's the creation of the world. It's about the whole world. Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur are the two great universalistic events in the Jewish year. They are the most... Un-Jewish of events, right? Um, and strangely enough, they are the ones with the least amount of domestic behaviour to be had, right? Um, and Yom Kippur, of course, is pretty well all spent in synagogues. So there's nothing domestic to be done there. And on Rosh Hashanah, the one critical thing to do on Rosh Hashanah, blow the shofar, is again something to be done in synagogue. Now, of course, we all know we have honey cake and apple and honey and those kinds of things. But these are cutesy behaviours. They're not uh, central practices. Right? Um, the Kabbalists uh, created a Seder 
for Roshana. Um, so there's a whole Seder to be gone through. I was brought up with this uh, Seder of my mother's Fardi. Um, uh, uh, but, uh, but in essence, Roshana and Yom Kippur are about the, the, the global population. They're a time when Jews turn their attention away from just the Jews and pay attention to the world at large. Oddly enough, these are the occasions on which Jews most assertively identify. Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, the least Jewish of the events in our calendars, are the days on which Jews are often the most Jewish. Very strange. And then we turn to Sukkot, which is the day, the festival, on which again we remember our dependence on God and our wandering in the wilderness, in the wilderness, an occasion when the Jews went right away from everybody else and were, as it were, entirely on their own. And the rabbis go and make a universalistic event of it. And I'll tell you how next week. I'm done. Thank you. Okay, so next week we'll look at Sukkot and then we'll move on to... Is it Hanukkah next week? It's Hanukkah. Um, we'll move on to Hanukkah, which is a truly, truly bizarre festival. And there's much to be looked at there. Thank you very much indeed for your attention. Thank you all.